Hey, what's up, everybody? Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley is presented by Domino's Hawaii, now promising contactless delivery to assure that your pizza is delivered safely to your door. Domino's Hawaii wants to thank its entire team for their efforts in staying safe, keeping sanitized, and working hard to serve our neighbors during these trying times. And a special thanks to you, the customers, for your continued trust. As a locally owned company, Domino's Hawaii knows there are people seeking work, and it is hiring as many in our community as possible right now. We're all in this together, so take care out there, and let's look forward to the next big sporting event where we can all gather and celebrate as one. All right, let's talk sports. Hey, what's up, Jordan? How's things going, man? Are you as excited as I am about the interview that we have to present here on this episode of the podcast with Joey Vieira, former St. Louis and University of Hawaii lefty pitcher, one of the all-time greats, and and I have to be honest, up front here, full disclosure, my all-time favorite University of Hawaii baseball player. Well, he's a good choice, right? He's an awesome guy, uh, just a terrific family man now, but he, I think... It's about as unique a perspective of anybody on that Barons team that played with Michael Jordan because of his career arc, how his career kind of unfolded and where he was at uh, at that point in 1994 um, and, and how the rest of his career played out as well. So I, the stories he's got are amazing. His career perspective is amazing. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's as good as you'll find of anybody adjacent to that, uh, to that wild ride with, with Michael riding the bus, if you will. Teammate of Michael Jordan for the Birmingham Barons in 1994. And, and you're right. I mean, looking at that chapter of Michael Jordan's professional sports career through the lens of a guy like Joey Vieira, who played 10 years in the minors, it adds a whole different element and dimension, uh, as you will hear. So very excited about that. But let's go through some topics first. And we start this show off with the warm-up. Major League Baseball approving a proposal that aims to have MLB action back in early July. Player safety and financial compensation for a shortened season, uh, major sticking points uh, at this stage. But uh, Major League Baseball could be looking at an 82-game abridged season and even such rule changes as a universal designated hitter and a revamped extra innings format. Maybe something like in the extra innings, you start with runners on base or something like that. What do you think of these potential changes? You know, they're smart. I think it makes a lot of sense, whatever the the season is going to look like, because I think that is still a big sticking point, especially when it's coming to salaries and and prorated salaries and how they're going to split the very reduced revenue um, going forward. But I, I think the universal DH... This, I think, is the perfect way to ease that in, right? I'm a National League guy. Look, I'm a Cubs fan. I love the history of the senior circuit, having the pitchers hit. The Cubs, you know, have had pretty good hitting catchers over the course of their, their history in, in my lifetime with Greg Maddox and Carlos Umbrano and, and, and so on and so forth. But it just it makes so much more sense to put another hitter in the lineup. Uh, and I think it, it's going to happen at some point in the future. And this is the perfect segue into that. I love what K- the KBO has done with the, the shortening of games and just calling it a tie after 12 innings. I'd much rather see ties. I know ties are kind of icky in a lot of people's minds, but I'd, rather, I'd much rather see that than 
putting a runner on second base. I think it's just, it's a little too far from from normal baseball. So I, I I'm not as on board with that. I'd, I'd rather we just call it a call it a day after twelve. Yeah, I'm not as motivated to see someone on base to start an extra inning. Uh, but I've longed for a shorter Major League Baseball season. And I know that is anti-purist thinking right there. It messes up all the the statistical history and comparisons. I understand that. But to me, there are dog days of summer when it comes to Major League Baseball where I just have a hard time, even as a baseball fan, I have a hard time staying fully plugged in. I'm like you. I'm a National League team fan. I'm a fan of the New York Mets. And I am still all for a universal designated hitter because to me, it's never been a debate. You have had some interesting stories uh, when Bartolo Colon hit that rare home run. It was such a big deal. And I think we celebrated the anniversary of that just like the other day or something. But uh, I don't know. Has anyone bought a ticket to watch a pitcher hit? Like has anyone bought a ticket for a Major League Baseball game because they wanted to see Randy Johnson taking swings in the batter's box. Like, no, I don't think that was ever the case. And so to me, put somebody else in the lineup that can maybe do some damage on a more regular basis. It's, it's too often an automatic out that I think it kind of hurts the game, in my opinion. So uh, I'm, I'm down with the universal DH. Yeah, this is an excuse to put that in there. Sneak it in there, as you kind of said. Um, go for it. All right, let's get to our game time discussion. The plot thickens here when it comes to intercollegiate athletics. 23 California State Universities announcing online classes for the fall semester, effectively keeping students off campus. Hawaii is a football-only member of the Mountain West and a member of the Big West Conference in most other sports. And, of course, there are multiple California State institutions in both leagues. So, Jordan, this clearly complicates things for the upcoming collegiate athletic season. Uh, You have had the membership of the Mountain West, teams like San Jose State, Fresno State, um, San Diego State being another that have put out joint statements basically saying no decisions have been made on the athletic front just yet. But that said, it is going to be very complicated to hold sporting events on campuses if students aren't allowed to be there. There is going to have to be an established special exemption given to student athletes. And that just seems like it would be politically and otherwise a bit difficult to pull off. What are your thoughts? I completely agree. Um, you know, we, we, we've already seen the, the CCAA, a Division II conference, which is made up entirely of California state institutions, basically call off the fall season. They're not going to play any sports. Uh, and so that's got to pay. And I know it's Division II, and that's much, much less of a big money business when it comes to intercollegiate athletics. But for the University of Hawaii, yeah, this puts things very much up in the air, whether you're talking about the Mountain West whether you're talking about the Big West in, in all of the fall sports, football and elsewise. Um, but I, I'm with you. If you somehow find a way to rationalize that athletes and athletic teams deserve an exemption or need an exemption to play, whether you're going to argue that it's imperative for the bottom line dollars and cents, that you're, you're able to isolate and keep these groups together, whatever. There is no way you can run from the argument that they need to be compensated differently than normal students. And I know they already kind of are, but you're basically saying they're essential workers, right? I mean, if you're saying that nobody else can come on campus and go to class and do all the other things, 
but you're saying we're still going to allow athletics to continue? If I'm one of those representatives, legal or otherwise, on the push for more player power and more player compensation when it comes to NCAA athletics, like this is just handed to you on a platter, right? Because it, you can't, they're essential workers at that point. Yeah, I think it's going to be the ultimate test for the term student athlete, right? Because if you are not allowing students in general on campus, that's going to test that whole essence and concept of student athlete because that's part of it. How do you distinguish that? How do you justify that? Uh, I think there are ways to do that, uh, but I think that's going to be a hard thing to sell in some corners when it comes to public relations and public policy. All right, Tua Tonga-Vailoa agrees to a four-year, $30 million-plus rookie deal with the Miami Dolphins, Jordan. It includes a $19.6 million signing bonus. He has a fifth-year team option in his contract. It's the largest signing bonus for a Hawaii athlete. You throw on top of that the fact that Tua is garnering a lot of attention in a positive way. His home aqua and road white number one jerseys are currently one and two respectively in New Jersey sales on NFLshop.com. And so his popularity is already bursting at the seams. Do you think that's going to put pressure on the Dolphins to feel compelled to get Tua out on the field in some form or fashion in his rookie season? There's going to be a little bit of pressure, I think. I, I do have some confidence, and maybe it's just wishful thinking, but I do think there are factors that will ease the pressure, or at least allow them to push back a little bit on the external pressure. Because internally, I think if they stick with what they've done, they've built a really good culture under Brian Flores, and I know this is just year two, uh, but what they were able to do that second half, especially last season, of kind of putting things together after making some trades, uh, they, they played hard under him. That was a disciplined football team. They've got a veteran quarterback who they brought back, you would imagine, in part because they were going to entrust him and Ryan Fitzpatrick to kind of be the bridge. I think he's very aware of the current situation. So you've got those things working for you. You've got a couple of built-in, I don't want to call them excuses, but built-in guardrails to kind of keep things on plan where, hey, two's coming off the injury. Like, that's all you got to say, right? Say, hey, he's not quite ready yet. And, you, of course, you run the risk of saying that too much, and then everybody's going to be like, well, how, how healthy is he? And all those kinds of things. And then, of course, what we've got with, with the coronavirus situation, where we're hoping for week one, that's pretty wishful. And so you've got the, the, the contracted offseason, the fact that he's maybe not going to have the full offseason. There are some things, I think, some, some fail-safes, if you will, um, that allow them to push back a little bit on that external pressure. I'm not saying – they're not going to want to put him on the field at all in his rookie season, but at least it kind of buys you some time, right? There's not going to be the pressure like Joe Burrow in Cincinnati where he is the guy. He's the week one starter for sure. I think there are some things built in that allow him and the Dolphins to, to ease into this thing. They shouldn't feel like they have to rush Tua in any way. If he's ready physically and otherwise, go for it. If he's not, if there's any concern whatsoever, if there's just any desire that they want to try to better the rest of the team, better him physically, make sure 100% he is good to go for that first professional snap, and just lay back in the cut and don't worry about what anybody on the outside says. Speaking of Tongo Vailoas, um, they're a pretty good quarterback family. His younger brother, Taulia, he has entered the transfer portal. Uh, Alabama is pretty crowded in that quarterback position. Uh, Bama brings back Mac Jones, who was a recruit in the same class as Tua Tonga-Vailoa. They have five-star QB Bryce Young. 
coming in. What do you make of the decision by Taulia Tongovailoa to test the transfer waters? I think it makes sense. You can kind of see the writing on the wall. Um, he's got to make a decision. And I think, you know, without spring practice and a real shot to go win the job, it's hard to say that, that he's going to be the guy come the fall be, or whenever they play the college football season because he never really got the shot in the spring to go compete with Mac Jones and Bryce Brown, who I believe was an early enrollee. I, I, I think he's got a lot of landing spots, right? And, of course, a lot of people are going to try and prognosticate and figure out where he's going, right? I don't know. I think our best bet is to, to think someplace closer to Miami because that's where Tua is now. And when Tua left Hawaii to go to Alabama, the, the family – moved as well and relocated to Alabama and he had a terrific career uh, finishing out his junior and senior seasons in Alabama and so you know the University of Miami right FAU FIU they're all in the the vicinity there you, you can go a little further north right and, and look at some schools up there whether it's UCF who's had a pretty good success here with with Hawaii quarterbacks their their last two starters with Mackenzie Milton and, and Dylan Gabriel so I mean my guess honestly is going to be Miami I, as as simple as that sounds. Uh, but I think it will be the U, one, because it's still Power 5 football. You go down to FAU or FIU, you're talking about the Conference USA, and there's no slouch on them, but the dude was at Alabama uh, before then. And I, they've got some, got some recognizable names with the Hurricanes, but nobody I don't think he can't beat out. I, I really think he can go win that job uh, at the University of Miami. And, hey, if you bring the U back to prominence and to playing for the Dolphins, like that is a dream scenario there if Lane Kiffin was still at FAU mm. that would have been my pick but he's of course now over back in the SEC and, and Willie Taggart's their big name but I, I don't know if that's the landing spot. Uh, Talia did play in five separate games last season and so the expectation is that he's going to have to redshirt next year anyway that I think loosens things up a little bit as far as options because he's not necessarily thinking about going out and competing for the starting job next season as much as in 2021. Uh, too bad there's not going to foreseeably be any XFL because, as June Jones told us in a recent interview on this podcast, he was going to draft Talia Tongovailo. It didn't matter where he went. So uh, that would have been an interesting twist in the plot for sure. But uh, we certainly wish Talia the best of luck uh, in that decision. All right. We had some live sports this past weekend, and it was a doozy. UFC 249. They pulled it off. For the most part, it was a success. Uh, Justin Gagey, in fact, Surprised a lot of people, defeated Tony Ferguson by fifth-round TKO to claim the interim lightweight or 155-pound belt. Gagey immediately tossed that belt aside, saying he was waiting for the real one, which belongs to, currently, Khabib Nurmagomedov. Conor McGregor seems like he's trying to desperately get into uh, some kind of matchup with Gagey. Called him out on Twitter, saying, I'm going to bleep and butcher you. You are bleeping dead. Uh, Khabib and Gagey, interestingly enough, are managed by the same guy. Uh, but McGregor also called out Nate Diaz. Uh, that would potentially bring about a contract for what would be a trilogy fight. Dana White is saying, hey, look, Khabib and Gagey, that's going to have to be the, the next logical matchup. But of all of these possibilities, what's the thing you're looking forward to the most? Uh, it's that one. I, I think that is the rightful title fight at 155. Poor Tony Ferguson, man. He had those fights set right five times. He's supposed to fight Khabib and none of them work out. And then... You know, he, he, he agrees to take the interim title fight against Gaethje and, and Gaethje goes out and beats him and beats him pretty decisively. And, and Ferguson never gets that chance, right? Never gets the chance really to fight for the bet. I think it worked out great for the UFC because not only is the torch kind of passed as top contender to Gaethje, it was a huge success in terms of putting on that card. Everything went off pretty well. 
um, in terms of the actual fight day. I know one of the fighters the day before kind of had to be pulled from the card because it's <laughs> testing positive. But I think by the fact that, that Gaethje wasn't necessarily as big a name as some of these other guys, even though maybe I think for a lot of diehard fans he was, that card being watched by just about everybody because there was nothing else on and it was a huge pay-per-view buy for the status of the card. Um, I think he is a name now. Like Justin Gaethje after that performance with all the eyeballs and the, the collective sporting consciousness watching um, becomes now a recognizable star. And so you don't need Conor McGregor to go sell the fight or sell the title fight. Like you've got a guy who's now front of mind in Justin Gaethje. And, and so you're looking at it from a promotional standpoint and who knows, it's going to take place on Fight Island, wherever that thing exists. Uh, that's what Dana's talking about. And then for Conor, right, he's got to chime in. I get it. But there's no way he should cut in line. And there's no way it's going to happen because, as you mentioned, the management side of it uh, for both Gaethje and Nurmagomedov. Conor should fight Nate Diaz. It'd be great, right? We could, BMF belt, whatever. Figure out something. Those guys just they'll put on an entertaining fight. We know the history there. Uh, trilogy makes sense. But uh, I'm looking forward to Gaethje and Khabib whenever that happens. It won't be for a little while here. Uh, but those two guys, man, Justin Gaethje was a bad dude on Saturday. He was terrific. Uh, and Tony Ferguson is not a human being. I don't know yeah. how you take that punishment and just don't go down. That's a that, I was I was equally as impressed yeah. <laughs> with his toughness uh, as with Gaethje's just clinical dismantling of the dude. Yeah, that is a special chin that uh, is featured on the face of Tony Ferguson. Any other UFC 249 observations? Because there was no crowd, uh, and that led to sort of an interesting twist because you had multiple fighters, Greg Hardy included, saying that he could actually hear the commentary of Daniel Cormier, uh, who was one of the analysts on the broadcast, and he said that the commentary he heard about trying to block the approaching leg kicks actually helped him, and it helped to change the flow of the fight. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about no crowd and, and hearing what we were able to hear, certainly uh, within the octagon? It's, an, it's a new experience for a lot of those guys. And, and the UFC has some experience with that, right? Whether it's the Ultimate Fighter uh, and then also Dana White's Contender Series where they're, they're kind of taking place in, in very small, intimate environments. There are still some fans on the periphery and whatnot in those small locations, but very much like that. The UFC, I think, pretty much more than any other sport, will thrive in that environment because of now all the, the audio we get, uh, the unfiltered access we get, hearing every punch, hearing every kick, um, the brutality of it. I mean, all of it, right? Uh, you're, you, everything is so much more intimate from a viewing standpoint, television-wise. And, and, and these guys don't need the crowd. The crowd helps, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's better off without the crowd. Um, but it worked terrifically. I, I thought it was a home run for the UFC, and, and they can continue to do this as long as everything stays safe. They, they don't need the crowd to pull off successful cards such as these, and it, the energy was, was through the roof. Yeah, I mean, Joe Rogan maybe was a little flippant about shaking hands and getting in yes. there next to fighters to, <laughs> to interview them. But that said, uh, even with the positive test to a fighter and his corner crew, I think that it was, it certainly has been portrayed in this way. And I do think that there's some merit to it. I think it actually was an example of how the testing could and would work in other arenas, other scenarios as it pertains to professional and other levels of sports. Uh, I think that was an example of that testing system working. Someone tested positive, you get them off the scene, and you go forward with the event. We'll see if there are any other negative ramifications that occur, but to this point, it appears as though the UFC was able to shine a light on one of the ways in which, fingers crossed, 
professional sports by and large can start to come back in a more normal way. All right, it's time to move on to our Domino's Hawaii main topping. This is sort of the main idea, the main focus of each podcast episode, Domino's Hawaii. Of course, they are now promising contactless delivery to assure that your pizza is delivered safely to your door. Our guest for this episode of the podcast, Joey Vieira. We record this podcast on Maui. He is now a Maui guy, former St. Louis and University of Hawaii pitcher. Uh, He got drafted by the Reds in the 31st round. Uh, But along the way, he happened to be a teammate of one Michael Jordan while playing for the Birmingham Barons. Uh, It was a real fun conversation. He's a really great guy. He is now the vice principal at Kahului Elementary School. Let's play that interview now. All right, we're here with Joey Vieira. Very excited to talk with you. I've told you this before, but you are my all-time favorite University of Hawaii baseball player. So anytime I get a chance to have a conversation with you, talk story with you, uh, it's a particular thrill for me. Well, thanks a lot, Colonel. I really appreciate it. You know, your family has been a part of my sports career as well, from your grandfather to your dad, for sure. That's right. That's right. It goes uh, back a ways. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Part of the reason, obviously, we wanted to talk with you is we want to catch up, generally speaking, for sure. Uh, But just so happens that we have this pretty highly publicized and popular 10-part documentary series that is airing every week on ESPN Uh, The Last Dance, Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls, and that dynasty. And of course, it wouldn't be the complete Michael Jordan story uh, without mentioning that chapter in his life where he played professional baseball for the Birmingham Barons. And guess who was his teammate in 1994? Yourself, Joey Vieira. So let's just start with a, a general question. Have you been watching the documentary series? Have you been paying attention to this thing? I have not. I really, um, I'm trying to stay focused on school, kind of doing different things at school, you know, grab and go. But it's really hard to kind of uh, go back and, 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 and watch some of the stuff that's happened in the past. Really hard. It brings back good memories for sure. But it's kind of sad sometimes. Okay, well, uh, we'll explore that uh, in a little bit. Uh, but let's first start with what do you recall about that first moment when you realized I'm going to be teammates here on the baseball diamond with Michael Jordan. Yeah, so I had, a, um, I had an agent. His name was Dan Horowitz with uh, Beverly Hills Sports Consultants. And um, he called me and he said, hey, I got you with the White Sox. I said, awesome, man. Um, so when do I report? He goes, you have to hang on a little bit. Some, some stuff going down. And I'm like, what's going down? He goes, oh, you're going to be teammates with Michael Jordan. Not long after that, there were like phone calls off the hook, kind of like, wanting autographs. Joe, can you get an autograph from Michael Jordan? <laughs> and I only got one. I only got one autograph from my dad. Because I imagine that was a temptation, right? To take pictures with him and, and just kind of get all of the fan memorabilia aspects uh, to get that all accomplished, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's part of being a teammate, right? It's not like bugging your teammate for autographs because you know you can sell it later on and make, make a buck. And, and you had to kind of um, be professional about it, right? So I kind of respected his space as far as like autographs and stuff like that. Yeah. How, how was he as a teammate? Um, because I mean, he's the star had never been brighter for him at that point in 1994, but how was he as a teammate for, for you guys? I mean, you guys were all trying to scratch and claw your way to the bigs and, and here comes Michael parachuting in, but uh, what was that experience like? You know, he, he didn't really know baseball culture when he first came in. I mean, I'm sure there's people talking about, talking about it to him. But when he came onto the team, I think everybody kind of lost focus for a little bit, you know, because we have a celebrity in the, in the clubhouse. I mean, 
it's Michael Jordan. I mean, people were like going to their, their lockers, you know, looking, getting ready and then having to take a double take and looking back and seeing Michael getting dressed and getting ready. And wow, I'm playing with Michael Jordan. And it took about a couple of weeks to kind of realize that, you know, it's not going away. Just deal with it and let's move on, you know? Yeah. What, what was that? circus like what was the media circus like i know you said you haven't been watching the documentary but jerry reinsdorf basically says the reason they sent him to double a was because they couldn't send him any lower because none of the affiliates would be able to handle the media demand what was it like being in the middle of all of that the first day okay so atlee hammaker is on our team steve Sachs is on our team we have Bunch of great guys, good athletes on our team. The first night after the first game, there's 40 different newspapers in our clubhouse. We had a pretty big clubhouse. And we're all standing around wondering, like, how are we going to go shower now? We got we to gotta go home, right? And so everybody's looking around. Steve Sachs just looks at us and just goes, boys, we're showering. And everybody just drops drawers and then just starts going into the, you know, going to the showers and cleaning up. There were ladies there. There were men there. There were microphones and cameras and not one person was really paying attention to us and we were just naked going around and charring up man oh, that is amazing you gotta do what you gotta do right that's um, right you gotta go home <laughs> that's right. uh, you know, Michael Jordan's competitive nature is, is the stuff of legend right as this documentary series has continued to sort of further reveal um, we understand and, and we've talked before about this that you engaged in some pretty legendary table tennis or ping pong battles with Mike. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. Um, so I, I lost once. And that was the last time. It was the first game. It was the last game I lost. We, we got to the table and just hitting a few balls back and forth. You get this feeling like I'm playing with Michael Jordan and his arms are huge, long, very slow. You know, when you can see it coming, it's just big, slow moving. But um, he beat me the first time. He says, um, uh, I said, okay, Mike, let's change sides. He goes, next. Oh. <laughs> and so, like, we're all competitive. I mean, like, every single person in that room is competitive. I went to my locker room, uh, my, my locker, got in my chair, put my head down, and promised myself I would not lose again. And I never did. Really? Yeah, because, and the next time we played, and I beat him, he said, change sides. I go next. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's, and that's when I, it was like game on, you know, like everything he did was competitive. Yeah. Every little thing. I mean, it couldn't be a meaningless ping pong battle. It, it had to be something that, that all yeah. of a sudden escalated to this sort of right. feverish competitive pitch. And it's kind of like, Viera, let's go. Let's go where, Mike? He goes, let's go. Let's play. I go, let me go do my running first. Give you a handicap, you know? And it was just like that, just kind of bantering back and forth, you know, but it was fun. He was very um, competitive, for sure. Th that is amazing. Um, Terry Francona is quoted in, in the documentary saying, you know, if, if he had 1,500 at-bats, had he gotten a chance to, to really spend some more time, he, he, he go, would have had a shot of, of making the bigs. What would you, what'd you make of his skill set out there as a baseball player once he got on the field? Well, one of the, one of the guys that was uh, – in spring training at the time. Oh, I can't remember his name now. Chip, Chip something. And he, he took me on the side and he told me about um, Kelsey Issa. Kelsey Issa played for that organization. If Kelsey Issa had 1,500 at-bats in the minor leagues, Kelsey Issa 
could have got to the big leagues. It's the amount of effort that everybody put into Jordan. Jordan worked hard, but every coach, our manager, Terry Francona, they came early. They, they helped him. Had they done that to anybody, they would have put him in the big leagues. That special attention was because he was Michael Jordan. Uh, that, that is interesting. That is in- you, you wouldn't have ever faced him as a pitcher at any point. Uh, well, would would that throw, have happened? We used to throw live to him. So Terry would make us throw live to him. Tito would make us throw live. And um, the reason he had base hits was because people would challenge him. They would want to try to blow him away. He's a good athlete. He can hit a fastball, right? But if you constantly threw breakers, there was no way he could hit it because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't that good yet. And so people used to get hit because they tried to challenge him with a fastball and everybody wanted to bring Michael down. And Michael was just looking fastball most of the time. You seem to have a little bit of fun at MJ's expense. You talked about the ping pong battles and you sort of had the last laugh on that front. Uh, and then I remember Sports Illustrated uh, had a recollection. They wrote about a moment where uh, you made Michael crack up in the dugout because what you served him, what was it? A cup of coffee? Was that what it was uh, in the dugout? I, you had like a napkin with like, I had a napkin like over a and you know, like for him every day was, he was put in a place where he would fail every day and after a while you just gonna have to laugh you know and so a lot of people try to make it look on the bright side you know this kind of stuff just kind of encourage him you know and I think baseball is famous for um, little pranks little little things that you do to let people know that hey we with you you know have a little fun you know ease up a little bit and that was just something that I could do to like lighten it up a little bit as he struggled through days of going 0 for 3, 0 for 4 with three punch outs, you know. That's the, the beauty of, of baseball in essence, right, is, is you have some of the ability and some of the latitude to have those kinds of moments. You can't necessarily do that on the bench during a basketball game in much the same <laughs> right, way. Yeah. And, and or even I, a football game. You can't <laughs> do nothing. <laughs> That's right. You know one thing about Michael Jordan? He's a leader, automatic. I mean, he knows, he knows how to move. He, he, has, he had the swag, you know, and he was a leader, even oh for whatever. People, he could talk to people. People would, he would attract people. People always came to him. Had celebrities, there were celebrities from every sport would come to visit our clubhouse just to see Michael Jordan. It was kind of cool. The guy, the guy was legit, you know, he was a legit leader and uh, you knew it. Just magnetic, right? All these people coming to Birmingham, Alabama, oh, yeah. all places. Uh, to go check this out. Uh, his baseball endeavor basically ends because of the 1994 work stoppage. Um, he chose not to cross the proverbial picket line. You also chose not to cross that proverbial picket line. Uh, what went into that decision as a guy who 10-year professional career drafted by the Reds uh, for the most part of that, that career? You're playing high-level baseball double a triple a triple a all-star at one point you know had, had really put in a lot of time in your effort to get yeah. to the to get to the show so i saw michael jordan walk out the last day i i had the privilege of being with 61 people in a in a clubhouse with ron Schuler, the general manager for the white Sox, marching around and talking about you know the white Sox, just supporting you paying your contracts and everything trying to talk us into playing those scab games and um michael stood up 
And as soon as he stood up, he was sitting right across from me. It was a big room and we're sitting in an oval and he was sitting right across from me. The exit was behind me. Michael stood up and said, I told you, I don't want to be part of this. And he stood up and he walked right by me. And that's the last time I ever saw Michael Jordan or heard him speak. For me, when he said that, I kind of I felt bad because every single ball player, every single baseball player never had that choice. There was no plan B. There was only plan A. And for him to be able to stand up, walk away from it and like nothing, I really got upset. I was like, oh, this is our livelihood. This is a decision that we all have to make, but you don't have to make it because you can take it or leave it. I didn't have that. I had no plan B. I wanted to play. 60 out of the 61, 30 didn't cross. 31, I think, did cross. And Rob Dibble was on our team that year. And he made us these, these gray shirts that said, replace this. And the exclamation point was a bat and a baseball. It was a gray shirt with black lettering. And um, when we had to take the field the next day, we had the black and the gray. The other guys had the pinstripes and the white, and they were on a separate field with a fence. And Rob Dibble told us, don't button up your shirt, drag your gloves, drag your bats. And we came out, not in lines, just dragging stuff. And the guys with the pinstripes just kind of turned their, their backs to us because, you know, they, they crossed. And it was kind of sad because it kind of split the league. Looking back on that decision, uh, because I read an article about how you had formulated in your mind that, you know, you had worked so hard to get to the bigs that had it been under those circumstances, maybe it wouldn't have meant as much or, or you wouldn't have felt as accomplished by it under those circumstances. Looking back on that decision now, would you have done anything differently? I can't, I can't say I would. At that point, it was hard. It was hard just to watch my friends cross because I was so set on making the big leagues the right way. And now when I look at it, what is the right way? Just get there, right? But, you know, I guess the values that I was taught as a, as a boy to earn your way and not, you know, I guess that played a big factor, you know, earning it. You know, Jordan mentioned your 10-year professional career. And, you know, I was a big fan of yours all the way back at the University of Hawaii. Uh, but you said at the very beginning of the interview uh, that looking back or being reminded of that or seeing some of that old footage uh, it would be a bit of a, an emotional experience for you. And, and you mentioned actually the, the word sad. Why would that bring those kinds of mixed emotions to you? I made the AAA All-Star All -Star team twice. I have never met anybody who has made the AAA All-Star team twice and never made it to the big leagues for a cup of coffee. The decision that I made not to cross really cost me that year of the sh when we got back to playing. I was in AAA... And Rick Rennick was our, our manager, and he put my name. He said he put my name in every night. Every night he put my name in. And they would take guys from AA that were throwing nine ERAs, five ERAs, and throwing them right over me. And I, I was holding a three, you know, and I was doing good. And Ron Schuler just had it out for me, you know, because I didn't make that decision. And he took me in his office. Ron took me in his office, and he said, you know, I brought you here. I can send you back home. All I could say was, we all have to do what we have to do. And that's what I said. And he decided to keep me. But I guess he buried me. I don't know. But it was, it was hard. And that's why when I look back at, at this documentary and, and what it means to me, there were great times with Michael Jordan. There were funny times. Oh, my gosh. 
But the bottom line was that I was still trying to get to the big leagues the right way. And there was no way I could get to it. And, and it was really hard. My wife took the brunt of it. You know, she would hear me every day. It's like, man, how do I do this? You know, it was hard. That still plays back in my mind. That's something. And uh, we appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, you know, Kanoa mentioned your days at the University of Hawaii and, and how good you were then and, and the fact that you got to, to play with your brother, Jeff, uh, your high school days at St. Louis uh, at the University of Hawaii. Well, what, do you, what do you take from those memories uh, from your days pitching for the Bows? You always, you always cheer for your teammates, but you're never going to cheer as hard for a teammate as you would your brother. You know, and there was, oh, man, when he was on the mound, I was always pressing. I pressed more for him than I pressed for myself. You know, Jeff was good. Jeff had a nasty slider, and he used to shoot people down after you strike them out, and just everybody would go nuts. Even our, man, our coaches would go like, oh, he shouldn't do that. And it doesn't matter. Jeff, once you struck somebody out, it was all over. He was, like, firing away. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and what, what people didn't really realize was Jeff was a competitor. He, he was, like, he wasn't going to lose. He was even offered by the um, Cincinnati to come and try out. They said, is this your brother, Jeff? I said, yeah. Call him up and see if he wants to come out and try out. And so I called him up and he said, no. And I was like, what? No, you got to do this. He goes, no. He goes, I'm done. I'm like, what are you talking about? My brothers were all better than me. Jeff, John, Jerry, all of those guys, they were better athletes than I was. It was just that I was kind of more hard-headed and goal-oriented, I guess. Why were you guys all so good at pitching? What was, what was the, what's the secret? Was it, is it just genetics? I mean, it's, it's one talented family, man. Oh, man. You know, my brother, John, I saw my brother, John, almost throw a no-hitter. Yeah, but unfortunately, he was, he was the coach on his coach pitch team, and he was throwing, and I was, like, <laughs> ragging him. I'm like, help him more innings, John. Hold him off. You got to know he's going. <laughs> and he just... <laughs> He almost had it, and the people around me were just laughing. And, and he was embarrassed because they weren't hitting. And, oh, we were always a competitive family, and we always had fun. My dad was really good at motivating us and, and teaching us how to um, work with people, laugh with people, even when you're down, you know, keep working hard. That was, that was my, my father, yeah. That's a great story, though. I mean, too good. He was too good for his own good in those uh, circumstances <laughs> in the coach pitch leagues. Um, you have decided uh, here in, in your post-baseball life uh, to enter the realm of education. And so currently you are the vice principal at Kahului Elementary. You spoke very candidly about the emotional roller coaster, if you will, that you endured as a professional baseball player. How has some of that, you think, informed how you go about your educational career and, and your relating to students or other faculty members and, and just shaping that side of you? You know, I see students in so many different ways. Um, one of the biggest ways I see children, they were the people that came to the, the dugouts. These are little kids, girls and boys. They would come to the dugout and want to talk to you and you try to be nice to them. We trade a ball for a hot dog. There were a lot of interactions. Children, like giving them hope, Kanoa, you know, Jordan, just giving them hope is what we need. We need people to go out there and just give them hope for a better life, a future. There are kids that want to play baseball. I understand that. But I also understand 
that 1% of 1% will probably even get a chance. So how do you keep their dreams hot? For me, education is a great avenue to reach kids and to, to inspire children to, to do what they want to do in life. Now, that, that is awesome. You, you talk about uh, the young kids running around, um, the, coming to baseball games, not to, not to date you or make you feel any older, uh, but I was one of those young kids running around at, at Maui Stingrays games at Mayahara <laughs> Stadium back in the day uh, where I know you played for a bit and then you jumped into the broadcasting seat for a time as well. I actually worked with my dad, uh, Barry, for, for a few oh, years there. Yeah. Uh, what, do, what do you remember from the good old Hawaii Winter Baseball League days that, that some folks will harken back to? Well, it's kind of funny because I really got to work with both your dads, right? And I really got to talk to them and meet them. And I got to say, your, your dads, like my dad, has influenced you guys to be great guys, just like me. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, but, but that is the culture of sports. You know, through our parents and our upbringing, we all have that. Whether you played long time or you didn't play at all or whatever it was, there, there's a camaraderie. There's an understanding. I loved working games with your dad. He was, he was good, man. He, was, he had all the information right in front of him. And I was always intimidated by your dad, Jim Leahy. Oh, my gosh. You know, because he had those words. And it was fun days. Those are fun, fun days. Well, Jordan may have made you feel a little old. I'll make you feel older because I remember hanging out at the Les Murakami Stadium, now known as Les Murakami Stadium dugout, uh, when you were playing and Jeff was on the team. And, you know, being Jim Leahy's son, I maybe had a little more access than some of the other kids. So I was lucky enough to be able to hang out in the dugout with you guys a couple of times. Yeah. My biggest thrill was I had that 1987 UH Rainbow Baseball card pack. They had the entire team. And I was able to get every single card autographed. And I still have that to this day. It was one of my greatest childhood accomplishments. So uh, you are, I think, one of the last ones I got, as a matter of fact. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, the one that was in my mind the most special and, and it was it was the greatest time wasn't it i i still remember the way everybody on that team there was something to look forward to on the weekends when the people would come and pack the stadiums it was so awesome and it was such a great place to have friends baseball friends it was really good yeah it really was a tremendous time and um you know looking back on it was was such a thrill uh, i think for all of us and um, you were just such a, a big, uh, you know, role model and, and a big inspiration for so many. So um, oh, with you. that, I just wanted to say thank you for, for spending some time with us. Uh, this was a, a wonderful walk down memory lane <laughs> and um, really was great catching up with you in general. Uh, thank you so much. You and Jordan, um, your, you guys, your families, always be in my heart. You guys, it's been a lot of years, a lot of years. And the Leahy family, Heli family. You guys have been a big part of my life. You guys have a great night. Let's take a break and then our post game coming up. Hey, for our listeners on Maui, we are holding out hope that the 18th season of the Maui Flag Football League will take place as scheduled this summer. The MFFL is a youth flag football league for boys and girls ranging in age from 3 to 18, broken up into divisions of seven different age groups representing five districts, Upcountry, Wailuku, Kahului, Kihei, and Lahaina. The goal of the MFFL is to teach the game of football without the worry of violent contact, concussions, or weight cutting. It's all about having fun, being active, and making new friends while reinforcing important values like teamwork, perseverance, and respect for your fellow players and coaches. 
For more information on the Maui Flag Football League, please call 808-280-7513 or email mauiflagfootball at gmail.com and get signed up. All right, back to the show. All right, Jordan, time for our post game. We get into our best and worst. You give me your worst. Yeah, I, I'll circle back to an earlier topic, the UFC 249 there in Jacksonville, which, you know, I've been pretty critical of, of Dana White and trying to get to this spot, but I, I thought they did a really nice job. But I, I felt for the announcers, John and Nick, Joe Rogan, uh, Daniel Cormier, as a guy who's called some, some high school games all over the state in, in some pretty empty gyms and arenas at times, uh, it can be really awkward when you're calling a game and everybody can hear you on the court, on the benches, you're nearby, right? Because you can't really whisper into the microphone while you're calling a game. Uh, and so you've got your headset on and you're kind of blocked out in your own world. And all of a sudden, a coach or a player kind of stops and looks your way. Uh, you know, when you describe the bad, bad pass or something like that, it, it could be really awkward. I know you've probably had some of those experiences oh, yeah. coming up in your broadcasting career. It's just, it's not really fun for anybody, right? And, and you, you kind of tiptoe around a little bit. You're walking on eggshells. Maybe you're a little more complimentary than you usually are because <laughs> heck, you don't want to, you don't want to lament anybody's failures more than you need to when everybody can hear you the whole time. It's bad enough when other people that are watching the game, like spectators or fans, can hear you. Uh, it is another animal altogether when the competitors in that sporting yeah. event can hear you. And that's what I experienced for several summers when I announced the NCAA Summer League on Olelo. Cable access television, baby. And yeah, you know, it, it was a great league, but you're not talking about a massive crowd that's filing through the entryways for that one. And so, yeah, I'm courtside and I'm announcing the games and uh, the coaches, the players, the refs, they can hear every single word that I'm saying. And I remember Greg Miller was uh, headed to UH from Kalaheo High School and he had dyed his hair. And I made a comment because he was on the floor that, uh, man, that uh, hair dye, that can't be good for his roots. And then he came up to me after the game and gave me a little junk about the fact that I uh, commented about his hair. It did come in handy, though, because we had to fill an hour and a half window no matter what, regardless of how long the game was for these Olelo broadcasts. And so if the game went an hour and 10 minutes, we had to fill 20 minutes. And so we had to get interviews. And so it did come in handy because in those instances, I would be like, all right, we're going to try to talk to Anthony Carter. Hang on. AC! get over here. Can I talk to you for an interview? And, you know, to his credit, he and most of the other guys came over. So, yeah. Uh, talk about paying your broadcasting dues. Yep. Cable access TV. That's where right. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to still be in that predicament when you're calling UFC pay-per-view events on ESPN pay-per-view though. Right. For those guys, it's like, that's what, that's what the pipsqueak entry level guys are doing. Uh, now when you're calling an international event. So I, I felt for him, man. It's, it's, it's not fun when you got to do it in an empty gym. That's right. All right. My worst, Darren Ravel. He tweeted that uh, he thinks what the NFL needs to do to salvage a season, he put three bullet points down. He said, one, players sign waivers that the team isn't responsible for them contracting COVID-19. Two, all players will sign, he says. Uh, he says they already get CTE with near certainty which is a pretty potentially controversial statement. Uh, and his number three bullet point, players who test positive stay out for two weeks. All right, that sounds simple enough, but he seems to overlook the fact that this is a contagion. And so, yeah, players can say, hey, look, I don't mind if I contract COVID-19, but the problem is all of the other people who aren't necessarily willing 
to sign themselves up for that risk who are interacting with these players in some way, shape, or form. And in fact, one of the people who commented underneath uh, his post said, uh, or asked him, how many NFL players have spread their CTE to their families, right? Kind of a sarcastic question there. And Darren Ravel says, their families have accepted the risk of them having a shorter life. There you go. Great take there, Darren Ravel. Congratulations on that one. And being so myopic in nature. Boy, yeah. I feel like it's worse in part because Ravel works for a network, the Action Network, which is just basically based on sports wagering, sports gambling, and that's how they analyze things, which is, don't get me wrong, I, I've got nothing against that. But when you're coming from that angle and then basically saying like, ah, whatever, just have them sign away their health liability. We just want the entertainment back so we can bet on games, enjoy it, and who cares if their families get sick and accept that they got shorter lives. Like, man, that is a bit bit crude. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are people that feel that way, but yeah, it's a little barbaric. Yeah, bad enough that he's like, COVID, concussions, it's all the same thing. They're risking their lives. It's like, yeah, but in the case of, of COVID-19, <laughs> you know, you are potentially risking other people's lives too. How do you not get that, Darren? All right, let's get to our best because we're in need of some uh, good news here. Uh, what's your best, buddy? Yeah, Mother's Day just this past weekend. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Uh, Tua Tagovailoa, who we talked about with that huge signing bonus. Way to go, Tua. Uh, bought his mom an Escalade mm-hmm. as a Mother's Day gift. So kudos to you, Tua. I do feel bad, though, because I, I got my mom a picture book for Mother's Day, which I don't, I don't think that can quite compare. So thanks, Tua, for making us look bad. Yeah, Tua's making us look bad for sure. All right, my best is uh, our last full episode uh, podcast Tyler Saladino who is playing in the KBO for the Samsung Lions he was our interviewee and just hours after we recorded that interview Samsung went out and got their first win of the season my Samsung Lions and in that game Tyler Saladino went yard that's the let's talk sports bump baby at work Jordan it's a real thing uh, absolutely it's gotta be uh, I mean it was hours hours after we talked to Tyler so the good luck is there's there's no doubt about that. Uh, I think Joey Vieira might might make a comeback after after talking to us today. Who knows? That's right. The the torn ligament in his throwing shoulder will probably heal itself now. Um, well, that's it for us. It's been a fun one. Thanks once again to Joey Vieira uh, for being so kind and generous with his time. Jordan, have a good one. Talk to you again soon, my man. Take care, man.